everyone. Welcome to the podcast. This podcast strives to bring you the best medical advice right to your favorite listening device. This is the smartest doctor in the room, and I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Uh, today in New York, it's a beautiful wintry day. We got uh, the snow coming down a little bit. I uh, hope everybody's in a safe place and warm. And we have actually a very interesting topic today. <laughs> As you all know, when we start the new year, we make a lot of new year resolutions. And one of them is, in a lot of the cases, to lose some weight. And today I'm going to be talking with an expert to talk about some of the new weight loss drugs, which I'm sure most of you are all hearing about. They're the whole craze. You know, we see all the celebrities using them. And, you know, we have to find out if they're safe or not. You know, obesity has become an epidemic in our culture, you know, for children as well as adults. And unfortunately, obesity also has social implications as well as medical ones. You know, you, a lot of times we hear these horrible remarks. Oh, that person, he's fat and lazy. You, you never hear about a person who's skinny and lazy. <laughs> I'm sure there are plenty of those. Uh, but in truth, being overweight is complicated by genetics, hormonal imbalance, quality of food that we eat. And the holy grail in lifestyle medicine has been to find a magic diet or a pill that will help many of us control our weight and not starve ourselves like a supermodel. Weight loss drugs in the past have come and gone, mainly because of dangerous side effects that led to lawsuits and having them taken off the market. Um, but in now in 2024, there is a lot of hype about a new class of drugs for weight loss. They are, I guess, generically called these semi-glutenide medications, and they appear to work by limiting a person's appetite. These medications were originally approved and still are for type 2 diabetes. But now, again, a lot of you are noticing when you see some of your favorite celebrities who were maybe a little bit overweight before, you can almost notice by how they look that they're taking these medications, which they're taking on an off-label basis and paying a lot of money for. My guest today, Dr. Philip Rubito, is a Manhattan endocrinologist and the assistant clinical professor at Mount Sinai, who regularly treats in his practice patients with obesity. And he's got a lot of experience with these new medications. So I'm really interested to find out, as I hope you are. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Philip Rubito to the podcast. Thanks, Dean. Thanks for having me. Okay. So let's start out with this. You know, there is there, there has been for now decades a lot of information on how to eat healthy. Why, why do you think, you know, in your years of practice that obesity is such a problem? I mean, is it the lack of movement? Is it the quality of food? What, what's your sort of gestalt on this? I mean, there's so many reasons for it. Obviously, we've, we've become more industrialized. We, a lot of us have sedentary lives. So the quality of the food is different. And, and weight loss is something that is very difficult for the long term. Pretty much anyone can lose 10 or 15 pounds in the short term. The, the practice of weight loss medicine is challenging in getting patients to lose that weight and keeping, keeping it off. So I think the caloric restriction it takes and the sacrifice it takes to lose weight is the biggest challenge to our population. So do you think a lot of it, I mean, you know, again, people get blamed for this. You know, do you think a lot of it is mental? You know, again, what's happened with some of these drugs that we're going to get into, a lot of people say, you know, it's not mental. You know, it's, you know, some people are just kind of born like this. You know, their genetics, you know, predispose them and they have other family members. So 
I know, again, in your career over the years when you have seen people before these drugs who've been able to maintain weight loss, what's your your sense of, you know, that did these people become extreme exercisers? Did they really make, you know, sort of sustainable long-term changes to their eating habits? Yeah, sure. So, so there is a genetic component, obviously. We're all blessed with a certain metabolism, so you can't compare yourself to the next person. Uh, right. and so, well, that person eats X and they're, and they're able to maintain their weight. Everyone's different. So you're blessed with your metabolism. Of course, there are metabolic issues that can have one person hold weight uh, and, and make it more difficult to lose weight, hypothyroidism, Cushing's disease. Uh, and, and certain vitamin deficiencies, um, you know, uh, but by and large, uh, we all have the opportunity to lose weight. A lot of it is just lifestyle and, and adopting a certain practice that is, uh, that is doable for the long term. Um, you know, the medicines have sort of revolutionized how we, how we look at weight loss because what they've done, at least in my practice, is they've helped people to uh, be able to adapt to a lifestyle, at least be able to learn a lifestyle. And, you know, for me, in my practice, the lifestyle is the main crux of the weight loss. The medicines out there are able just as an adjunct to let the patient, you know, uh, learn to understand that they can control themselves and, and it gives them a sense of control. And and the, and when the first few pounds come off, it's it becomes like a psychiatric medicine. A, a lot of the the anxiety and and the uh, and, and the depression and then the guilt that goes with eating is taken away, and patients feel like they they can regain control and they're able to uh, to to be able to uh, to make the sacrifices. And then you know I try to get my patients closer to their target weight, and then we talk about what to do with the medicines for the long term. But in, a lot, in my practice, no one gets medicines for weight loss without having some sort of a plan or some sort of a, an approach dietarily and lifestyle. That makes a lot of sense. You know, just you bring up an interesting issue too, you know, because obviously this, um, you know, people's weight, it's, it's hard to determine what is exactly overweight for somebody. Is it 10 pounds? Is it 20 pounds? You know, I once, there was a very famous cardiologist, George Sheehan, uh, who was part of the running movement. And one of the things he said, interesting in his book, you know, when he felt, you know, obviously back even in the seventies or eighties, people were gaining too much weight. He says, you should really be about your high school or college weight, which I think a lot of us find very hard because it seems like every decade or so, four or five pounds comes on and doesn't want to leave. So when you're assessing a patient in your office, uh, how, how do you, let's say a person walks in and I'll just give an example there. Okay, let's let's use Dr. Dean Mitchell here. Dr. Dean Mitchell walks into your office and says, Dr. Rubino, I'm a patient of yours. I'm 5'11 and a half. I gotta put that half in there. I now weigh about 173 pounds on a good day. I mean, I was a tennis player, and when I was in high school, I weighed about 135 pounds, 140 pounds. Probably in college, 145, 50. And now obviously being in practice 30 years, it's taken its toll on me. <laughs> um so how do you determine? Do you go by the body mass index? I mean, do you ask the patients, do they think that they're, you know, overweight? What's How do, how do you make that important assessment? Yeah, I mean, if you look epidemiologically in animal models, I mean, thinner models, thinner thinner patients do better long haul. Cardio, cardiovascular risk reduction, obviously, mm -hmm. to control less risk of diabetes, less risk of cancer. So if you look epidemiologically, different studies, Okinawans and other populations that are generally thinner, they live longer, right? And they're happier. Um, and in general, as a population. 
when I risk stratify my patient, when I come up with a target weight, I always ask my patient what they'd like to be. And invariably, they will tell me a number that's probably 20 pounds higher than they can ultimately achieve, okay? How I decide their weight is, of course, I use the BMI as as the, as the my guideline. Is that, is that sort of like the MetLife tables or is that that's separate? Because remember MetLife used to have the... Yeah, I mean, that, you know, that that is uh, generally considered um, ideal weight and that yeah. was... That was for actuarial, uh, yeah. and I, I, I think that's generally been. Um, it's not used as often. I think uh, BMI. So BMI is the, is the most accurate in the absence of pregnancy and and bodybuilders with dense musculature. BMI is typically is that uh, is that measured through a machine these days, or your scale can actually do it? How do you? Um... Uh, yeah, I mean the the BMI. I mean I have an in body machine, but very very simply, it's it's uh, it's a height and weight. Um, you just plug those into a formula. You put it into the formula. Okay. Mm-hmm. And what about also, you know, as you know, too, there's different body types. I remember, you know, it's really funny. When I, I, when I was in uh, medical school, I had this really good South African anatomy professor. And I remember him talking about, you know, it was based on this guy, Dr. Sheridan, who was originally from Columbia. He had it, the three different types called the uh, endomorph, ectomorph, and mesomorph. And the way I sometimes tell patients, I have them take their forefinger and thumb and wrap it around their wrists. And it actually determines what's your body and bone structure. Does that play a little bit of a role too? I mean, some people are just kind of, you know, thicker than others, you know. Yeah. They're not gonna have that, they're not gonna have that slim body yeah. really ever. So why, you know, why try? There are different frames and, and people who tend to be mesomorphic tend to be more muscular, and you understand that that having more muscle is generally denser. Um, so yeah, I mean, I consider that, um, but I typically use the BMI as as the uh, as 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 what I go for, and I come up with the target weight for the patient, and I I also risk stratify the patient cardiovascular wise. So mm-hmm. I want to know at their cholesterol and triglycerides. Uh, I mean, you know, cholesterol is not something you can make such a huge impact on. At least the LDL, you can you can drop the triglycerides with significant lifestyle, but you know, yeah. the LDL is more genetically driven and and produced endogenously by the liver, right? Driven by your genetics, but certainly hemoglobin A1C, sugar, um, you can make a huge impact in patients who have sleep apnea um, mm-hmm. and, and reduce the risk of, of heart failure in, in, in that population. Blood pressure is something I, I routinely pull people off their blood pressure medicines one one after another. Really? Uh, weight loss, it's, a, it's incredibly uh, sensitive to weight loss. The blood pressure drops. Interesting. So I think it's important not only to come up with um, a target weight aesthetically for where the patient would like to be, but also to to risk stratify them and and uh, and try to you know get the maximum amount of weight loss that will get them to to get their cardiovascular risk factors uh, closer to target. Mm, very good. Let me ask you about the weight loss programs because you know actually we're seeing on TV a lot too that uh, Noom and. I don't know, was it Golo, all these things. And, and for forever, there's been Weight Watchers. Now, it's in, and of course, there was the Atkins diet I've done and the, the, the Zone diet. I've interviewed Barry Sears on the podcast before. But, you know, I wanted to ask your opinion about the types of foods. Now, what I always struck me as strange was Weight Watchers, from what I know, I never was involved with it, but that it was sort of based on this point system and how many calories you ate. You know, although the foods looked... Ridiculous! Like they were letting you have chocolate cake and little pieces of lasagna, you know, I guess for comfort level. But and then on the other extremes, you know, the Atkins, the Sears, they were all like stay with protein, low carb. 
Um, what do you usually recommend to your patients that you're working with, whether it's with medications or without, as far as a, a diet? How do, you, how do you approach that? Yeah, Dean, it's a great question. Um, in my opinion, and from what the literature supports, structure is so important. So the patient needs to have some structure. So something like Weight Watchers gives that patient that structure. They need something to, you know, to, to follow, basically. Um, and just winging it and, and counting calories. I mean, study after study has shown that counting calories and weighing food is not a long-term solution. It's just too much sacrifice. Okay. So I like more structured programs like fasting, longer fasts, right? In regards to the keto diet, I'm not a huge fan of ketosis yeah. in regards to adding fat to the diet, right? So the Mediterranean diet, for instance, is a fantastic diet. It's widely considered you know, the best diet in the world, but it's it's rich in fat. And for people who are looking for overall cardiovascular health, of course, it's 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 got its advantages, but it's also high in fat and high in grains. Um, grains will certainly cause insulin release and fat deposition. Uh, carbohydrate intake in general increases the, the pancreas to make Insulin. Insulin causes fat to be deposited. So triglycerides that are in the blood in the presence of insulin after a carbohydrate meal will push that uh, that that uh, triglyceride of fat into the fat cells. So one of the bit, one of the uh, tenets that I like in my practice is prolonged fasts in which the patient is not you know eating carbohydrates for long periods of time. I'm talking 24 hours twice. Oh a week. wow. Mm. And in which case, there's their body simply isn't making insulin. So not only is there obviously caloric restriction two days of the week, but there's also a change in the hormonal milieu in such that the the insulin, uh, there's no insulin for that long period of time. And without insulin, very simply, you can't store fat efficiently. So in my estimation, and what science has supported, is that it's not just caloric restriction, um, but it's also uh, limiting carbohydrates. And that seems, from anecdotally speaking, from my experience, has been the most successful way for patients to lose weight. And most importantly, Dean, to keep it off, right? Having some so how often, you know, it's interesting, because I interviewed the longevity expert, um, Dr. Longo from the USC. You know, he was very big on um, these short fat, well, he called it fasting, but it was basically very low calorie, like for three or four days. And he had a special program with packets because he does a lot of research on longevity. So mm -hmm. you're saying that's what you do with your patients? Just say to pick one day out of the week and I want you to do a 24 hour fast? Yeah, depending on the patient, even sometimes two days of the week, right? And there's. How can they, how can they do that? I mean, and when you say fasting, you're saying. Uh, you're not, are you saying not eating at all, just having drinking or are you saying, you yeah. know, like a low calorie or? Yes. So fa fasting, I mean, to calories, right? So I typically have them go 24 hours without, without a calorie. And then, and then I'll have them break their fast with a meal that contains no carbohydrate. So essentially they're going up to 20, 24 hours without a calorie. Wow, that's going to be really hydrate. tough though. Is it, I mean. It's tough in the beginning and then, you then know. they get used to it? The patients get used to it. So, you know, ketosis is um, is is when you ingest fat uh, or you, you oxidize fat, you use fat as a source of fuel, for instance, in the keto diet, mm. there's a process called ketosis where fat yeah. is oxidized and used as, a, as your source. Yeah. And there are byproducts of fatty oxidation, uh, beta-hydroxybutyric acetoacetate. And these have been shown to be beneficial uh, in animal models and and, and uh, potentially um, it's being studied in human models to be associated with longevity because they have positive metabolic effects. So instead of doing the keto diet where you're adding fat to the diet, the fasting promotes ketosis by breaking down your own endogenous fat, which is your fat that's stored. 
uh, through fasting. So you're getting a similar effect and you're raising ketone levels and, and thus the byproducts of the ketones. And you're potentially getting that cardiovascular metabolic advantage from doing that. So this is still something that's being studied, but it's- Yeah, you know, I, I interviewed also Andre Mikhailson. I don't know if you know him. He's from Germany. He's really a very interesting guy. He's written two books, The Nature Cure, The Fasting Fix. I'm a really legitimate, super researcher, doctor. And, you know, they have like special clinics apparently in Germany where people go in to do fasting for diseases. A lot of, a lot of like, psoriasis, uh, like psoriasis and uh, a lot of arthritis conditions. But, and so how do you bring them out of the fast? Because I know even, you know, I'm Jewish. And when I, um, when I go like on the Jewish holidays in September and I fast, I'm dying that day. You know, when I come out of it, the thing I always have to be so careful about is breaking the fast yeah. because, you know, either sometimes you tend to overeat. Um, and then you feel even worse. So do you have like a certain plan for the patients, you know, yeah. like, you know, a specific kind of meal, you know, cause I'm sure they're, they're ravenous at that point. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, at that point they're chewing on their arm after 24 hours yeah. calorie. But so, so the difference between maybe a religious fast and a fast like this is that you're, you're hydrating. And, and one of the reasons why people feel fatigued and, and they, they get the, the dizziness and the nausea from the ketosis is they're not flushing. They're not getting enough hydration. Got it. Oh, interesting. Fast, I mean, patients are drinking black coffee, no milk, right? That's a, oh, a interesting. Okay. They're drinking water, they're drinking tea. And okay. they're going 24 hours without, you know, without a calorie. And then how they break their fast, staying to, you know, the theme is to have, to break their fast without a carbohydrate. And this is something that I... And what would that be? Like, you give an example, what would be a typical... Chicken and broccoli. And, and you can eat as much uh, as you want. And I go over this in detail with my patients in my practice. And uh, oh, wow. gets it correct the first time, but um, it, it's not that complicated. Uh, but it is, it's, it's difficult to do. It's easy to understand. Um, and then, and then there's no eating until the next morning, basically. So you're going 24 hours without a calorie, but essentially you're going some 30 some odd hours without the opportunity to carbohydrate. As such, your body is not seeing insulin for 30 some odd hours. Yeah, that, that's got to be the key. I think it's one of the things that Atkins really contributed to the understanding of like weight. Um, I mean, you can say what you want about uh, of the the fatty meats, and, and but but it was him, him just you know basically was the first one uh, talking to promote about the insulin response. Yeah, you know it's interesting. I was on a podcast once with Dr. Stephen Gundry. I don't know if you know him. He's kind of written some popular books. He's a he is and was a cardiac uh, cardiothoracic surgeon out in California. I think at Loma Linda, and you know he ended up saying how he got into nutrition because. He started to develop diabetes, hypertension, and he was about 40, 50 pounds overweight. And he kind of did a, his own deep dive to help himself. And actually, I was on the podcast with him, and he was like, you know, kind of rail thin. But we were talking on the podcast, and then even privately, um, I found it a little shocking what he did. I mean, he essentially ate within a two-hour window every day. That was his thing, you know, and I was like, this is not doable for me, you know, where, you know, again, he would, uh, and I think he was pretty liberal of what he was eating. You know, he had all his things that had the good fats and everything in it, but literally he would eat between, you know, and because he wanted to be social with his wife, but it would be between like five and six. And that was it. And I, I don't know how sustainable that is for people. And I'm not even sure with the, the fasting too, are your patients able to work or they do that on a weekend day? And of course, that's when people want to socialize, you know, I mean, because that becomes those implications as well. Yeah, see, I, I don't believe that that's something that's sustainable for the long haul, but doing that two or three days a week is doable for most people. So there's, I tell okay. them, there's okay. got to be some skin in the game. You have to make some somewhere. 
for me and for what the evidence supports, counting calories and weighing food is not a realistic way to live your life. So yeah, it's a big sacrifice to go that long without eating. Um, but if you're hydrated, you should be able to work out. I mean, most of us are not training for the Tour de France here. So it's, right. it's <laughs> every day. Yeah. Um, so very simply, you can work out. I tell my patients to work out every opportunity that they have to work out, even if they're post-fast. So most importantly is, is being hydrated. All right. Your body, you, you will be able to work out and exercise. Maybe you won't be able to exercise at the level that you previously were, because obviously mm. using fat is your source of fuel, or I shouldn't say yeah. But using your fat as your source of fuel is not nearly as efficient as using carbohydrate or glycogen stores. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things too, you know, in my, in my work, because I do a lot of functional and holistic medicine, is that I'm always worried about constipation with my patients because I, I really feel that they don't get rid of toxins when they get constipated. Is that a problem with the fasting? Because I know, you know, your system sort of kind of slows down and shuts down a little bit. You know, one of the things that obviously helps you go to the bathroom is the stimulation of food into your gastrointestinal system. So is that an issue for your patients or... It is an issue for those who are who are dehydrated. First of all, okay. for those who are on the medicines, that we'll probably start talking about. Yeah, it's been two minutes. Yeah, everybody's waiting. Yeah, waiting for this. Yeah. <laughs> on, you know, on top of that, in general, I mean, it's really important to make the distinction between constipation and just not having as much food yeah. in your system, and and not oh, okay. go to the bathroom as frequently. So one is pathologic, and one is, as you would expect, physiologic. You know, yeah. Okay, let's get to what people want to know, because they're dying. They're on the edge of their seats. Um, so I guess my first question to you is, and again, when you're seeing patients, I don't know if you start them on this regimen of the fasting and going over the right foods, but how do you determine, I mean, I'm sure it's a consensus, you know, if a patient is a good candidate for one of these weight loss, these new weight loss medications? Do you bring it up to them? Or a lot of times they're asking you, or it's a combination? Well, first of all, a lot of people walk into my door with predetermined notions of how they want to lose their weight. So they tell okay. me what they want and they've done. Wow. The okay. A lot of people come in and they just they, they're an open book and they're just leaving it to me. Um, and they they let me tell. And, and, you know, my job is let to let them know all of the tools that we have in the shed to get them to where they would like to be and where they should be. Okay. Medically. So, um, so I, I, you know, I sort of, I, I never bring up medicines with my patients. I, I, I've been doing weight loss medicine for a long time, long before, you know, this, this, this class craze. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. So my job is a lot harder just about, you know, seven or eight years ago. Um, but, but now I, I, I talk about patients' lifestyle and I try to make adjustments in their lifestyle. And I talk to them about the fasting. I talk to them about exercise programs. I check all of their vitamin levels. I check all their hormones because a lot of folks who struggle with weight have hormonal deficiencies. Right, uh, right. These patients have low testosterone. Um, hypothyroidism is is common, right? Vitamin mm -hmm. deficiency reduce people's energy levels so they're not able to work out and function, you know, at the capacity that they should be able to. Right. So I, I check all of these things when my patients, my patients first come in the door. I talk to them about lifestyle. I talk to them specifically about hydration and about about fasting. Um, I gauge their interest in it. And patients sometimes when I tell them to not eat for 24 hours, they roll their eyes and I know <laughs> not going to go far. So then I pivot and, and you know, right. one right. program is not this, you know, there, there, are, there are plenty of ways to, to do this. 
Uh, and then and then I, I I do tell them that these medicines do exist. And I and I, I write the medicines that I think they would be eligible uh, for potentially uh, should their insurance allow. And and I send them home as part of their um, their, you know, their part of their program is for them to do their homework and read about it and see if they're interested. I don't have a high level discussion of the medicine on the first visit because a lot of patients will look at it and say absolutely no way or I could do this on my own. But I think it's important to let people know that these drugs are out there and mm -hmm. they, they can help people get to their... You know, as you said, you've been around a long time. I remember, I can't remember, was, was it called fenteramine or something? There was another drug that was used probably two decades ago, which people were taking. I don't know if it was based on like an amphetamine, but it yeah. um, it turned it's out to be... It's fenfluramine. Fenfluramine, right. Yeah, and then the... The fenfluramine component was the one that was associated with valve issues in the heart and was still right. thinking requiring valve surgery on that basis, you know, really? 20 years to 30 years. I mean, sort of got a bad knock because it was guilt by association. The fenfluramine is still used um, in the field of weight loss medicine. It's a central acting, uh, another central nervous system uh, stimulant that suppresses appetite is still something that's used uh, quite commonly. But yeah, that's that's one one of the first drugs out there for weight loss. Mm -hmm. Do you um, the the whole idea of these uh, was it called semi glutenide medications? Is that they affect insulin, or because apparently, from what I understand, they affect um, appetite again. So where people can go long periods without eating, which obviously maybe facilitate your fasting thing. Well, is that what's happening with these drugs? You know, is that, is that how it works for diabetes? It just sort of stabilizes the blood sugar? It, it works a little differently for diabetes. So the class of medicine is, is uh, GLP-1 agonisms and, and semaglutide is the is Ozempic or Wegovy as we know at different indications. Um, and terzepatide is the other one that's Monjaro or Zepbound for, for weight loss. So these are the same medicines used uh, purpose differently for different indications. Um, in regards to patients who have a glucose dysregulation or diabetes, these medicines work in a very specific fashion or a couple of fashions to improve um, diabetes. They, they allow the pancreas to make insulin in response to a meal. So they're lowering the glucose after a meal, and they also lower a hormone that comes from the pancreas called glucagon, which also raises sugar. So it's got two effects. It also slows the absorption of carbohydrates from the gut. So it makes your body uh, uh, absorb carbohydrates in a more easy fashion, and it allows for the body to process it. So you don't get the same spikes after meals. The other effect it has on diabetics and non-diabetics is its effect on appetite. It works on the hindbrain to suppress the appetite. And very simply, Patients who are on these medicines don't eat as much. So if you're obese or need to lose weight and you're non-diabetic, it's going to have that effect on you. It won't have the other effects on the pancreas, um, but it will have the effect to slow the gut, okay? So in which you could potentially get the side effects. And I think a lot of people are familiar with the side effects of these medicines, and we can talk about that. Yeah, well, let's talk about that if you wouldn't yeah. mind. Because the only thing that I've heard, well, two things. One, that you have, because of the, I think the slowing of the gastric emptying, you have to be careful before procedures like endoscopies or obviously a surgery. Sure. Um, then there was the issue about suicidal ideation, which seemed to be debunked, can, yeah. you know, from the FDA. Although I have to throw this out there, I, you know, 
I'm still always really concerned about the FDA's uh, ability to protect us because on the front page of the New York Times yesterday was about uh, Montelukast singular, which kind of falls into my area of allergy and asthma. And I knew for years I wasn't that thrilled with it because I heard that there was issues with with young children possibly, you know, having suicidal ideation and issues, and they kind of downplayed it. And now turns out there's a lot more than they realized. So what, what are you concerned about with these drugs, you know, yeah. uh, that you have to tell patients to obviously, you know, when giving them sure. informed consent? Sure. I mean, for, for these medicines, there's a black box warning, and that, that is for a medullary thyroid cancer and pancreatitis. Okay. Now, in reality, the medullary thyroid cancer is something that happened in phase one clinical trials, which are the trials that are done in animals, rats and mice, before the drug came to market uh, in okay. humans. There's been no significant increase in those, but that said, I still have to have that discussion with the patient and, you know, for medical legal reasons. Um, and then the other black box is for uh, pancreatitis. Um, mm. This is something, many drugs cause pancreatitis. There's pancreatitis associated with obesity because of gallstones, because of high triglyceride levels. So it, oh, pancreatitis does happen more frequently in the, in the obese population. But there was there is a couple of studies that suggest that there is a higher why would this cause why would this cause pancreatitis because of the gallstones or we don't know no we don't think it's because of the gallstones but that's something else we should discuss because there is a higher risk of gallstones in anyone who loses a lot of weight okay so bariatric surgery patients who lose weight rapidly are prone to gallstones okay so patients who take this class of medicine with an intensive lifestyle modification who lose a lot of weight in a long a short period of time are prone to gallstones so gallstones are something that are you know that are in the picture and, and need to be monitored patients need to be monitored for that and that very simply usually is manifest as uh, abdominal pain in the right upper quadrant of the abdomen typically after a meal um as far as those two major side effects, the, the pancreatitis and the medullary thyroid cancer, uh, you know, I, medullary thyroid cancer, I think, has sort of been, uh, we, we, we're convinced that this is something that really happened to rats. Um, mm -hmm. Pancreatitis, I, I'll be honest, I, I've never seen it. I go to lectures all the time. I've given lectures on the topic all the time. I've never seen a case of pancreatitis from any of the drugs in this class. So it is something that we have to discuss with the patients. Um, but it's not something that I'm really, you know, uh, concerned about. What is important and is is the effect that it has on your gut. Okay, so so you know, and all the press about this medicine has been this gastroparesis, the effect of it causing emergency room visits for patients for constipation and and nausea and intractable vomiting. So, you know, managing expectations when you give this medicine is of, of utmost importance. You need to tell the patient that when they start this medicine, that they more than likely will experience some degree of nausea, potentially constipation. Some patients can get diarrhea. Um, so th those are the most common reflux also because of how the medicine works. The medicine very simply slows the emptying of the gut. So if you're if you're from the from from the esophagus all the way to your bottom, it's going to affect the uh, the transit time of, of food. So there's a higher risk of patients getting reflux in the beginning. Of course, when patients lose weight, that reflux gets better because there's less pressure on the abdomen. But in the beginning, patients do have symptoms, reflux, nausea, sometimes vomiting, constipation, sometimes diarrhea. So managing expectations and monitoring your patients who are on this medicine very carefully. So I, I get two patients from the two calls from nurses at Mount Sinai every week from patients on this class of medicine that were given 
the medicine by their trainer or by their dermatologist. <laughs> right. Yeah, I know. They don't the, have a whole lot of experience managing or preparing the patient for what's in store. And right. those are the patients who are either they got the wrong dose or they weren't prepared or they didn't understand what yeah. their symptoms were coming from. And they end up in the emergency room. And this is and this is why the medicine is really getting some bad press. I mean, we know about the good press and, and, yeah. and it's very what about good. the mental health issues. Is there any kind yeah. of, in your experience, issues with mood changes or anything of serious? Uh, I mean, if you look at the best depression index uh, and, you know, the, the different ways to measure depression, when people lose weight, they're happier. Right. Of course, medicine yeah. can, can have a direct effect. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think there was a couple of studies that suggested there was a higher risk of suicidal ideations. I, as you mentioned earlier, I, I think they've been debunked. I don't know of any um, uh, study recently that suggested that that was still something. Mental health, I can't tell you the first thing that happens to my patients as they feel a sense of liberty, that they finally have control. Like I mentioned earlier, I, I consider this almost like a psychiatric medicine. Patients, mm. their depression is improved. Their quality of life is improved. The first thing that happens to them is they sleep better, right? Their, their partners will tell them they snore less. They wake up rested. Uh, and that happens. Almost every aspect of, of your life improves. Um, and, and, and metabolics improve. We all know that, you know, sleep deprivation leads to hypertension and cholesterol issues and, and, and even insulin resistance. So when sleep is improved, and which is one of the first things that happens with this medicine with the first 10 or 15 pounds for most patients, is that the quality of their life improves. So in my experience, anecdotally speaking, I've seen nothing but improvements in, in, in my patients' quality of life and, and pretty much every aspect of their health mentally and otherwise. So do the now do the gastric bypass surgeons have to be concerned here? <laughs> is this going to go down? I mean, most of the gastric bypass surgeons that I know are now adopting programs like this in their practice well after they do the surgery i mean they do the surgery and then they give the people the drugs or I, I give you know most people you know, so would barry i mean what's the amazing was yes and vice versa did you say let's do a trial of ozempic or Mujaro, or do the doctor say okay let's we gotta do the surgery and then to keep you this you know we'll put you on these drugs which which comes first so typically you know patients are on a liquid diet before the surgery and Anytime you can lose weight, if you're obese, before surgery is going to lower your operative risk, wound healing, anesthetic risk, and, and other risks. So I, I always um, talk to patients about lifestyle. And even if they've committed to the, uh, to the bariatric surgery, I still work with them and I want them to be prepared for what's coming on the other side of it. I have some patients who are scheduled for surgery. They come in and they lose 15 pounds and they just stay with the program. And sometimes they get close to their target weight without the scars. Nice. So I have lots of patients that's ha they've ha that's happened to. So, yeah, I mean, um, I think bariatric surgery is something that's that's falling off a bit because yeah, of I know it's a dangerous surgery. I The other thing I've seen in my practice, again, doing the holistic functional side of our practice, you know, I see a lot of vitamin and mineral deficiencies after the, um, you know, those surgeries. They just their body, the intestinal absorption is not good and they run into problems. They don't feel good. Some of them, you know, even though they're thinner, you know, their iron is very low, their B12 and magnesium. That's why I use a lot of sublingual. I try to bypass the whole lower intestinal tract to try mm -hmm. to get the oil. We'll do injections to try to, you know, maintain that. Is that, is that the same problem? The Mujaro or Zempic effects, vitamin absorption? No, well, I mean, there is you, patients 
generally have a more restrictive diet because they very simply can't mm. much of those, you know, so, so I monitor my, my patients very frequently, but, you know, with, with the uh, changes in the gut from even gastric sleeve, um, there are multiple vitamin deficiencies, certainly calcium, iron, mm. B12, vitamin D um, that need to be repleted um, with the drugs. You don't see this as much, um, but, but there can be, because again, patients generally have a more restricted diet than they had. They simply can't get the same amount of calories in the same a spectrum of food that they were previously mm -hmm. getting. Let me ask you that I would say it's the million dollar question, but it's really the thousand dollar a month question. You know, patients want to know, <laughs> even there was written in the uh, Wall Street Journal, there's a, uh, a journalist who went on Munjaro and uh, he talked about how, I mean, they showed the before and after picture. He lost like 50 pounds. He was feeling really good. But he said, I, I can't afford this at $1,000 a month. So, of course, patients are petrified. What happens when I come off this medicine? So, what again, in your experience, you know, is there an end in sight where you think, you know, once they've reached their target weight, they can come off of it. And by you having a program for them, they can maintain, you know, where they are or is, are, are there problems? Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, Dean, my patient, no one gets the medicine without having some skin in the game. So they need to show me that they can practice some form of restriction. Okay. okay. So my patients all do, most of them do the fasting. My patients do not gain that weight back. They take it off. If you look at the data on these medicine in general, patients mostly gain the weight back because they're not on a particular program. Of course, right. when these studies, they had them on, they had them followed with dietitians but no one follows caloric restriction for the long haul. So my patients need to demonstrate to me that they can do something, something to, to something with structure that will allow them to maintain the weight once it comes off. And my patients lose weight much more rapidly uh, than patients, if you look at the studies, who just took the medicines because they're doing the medicine as an adjunct to the lifestyle, the lifestyle being the mainstay. So... In regards to access to the medicine, this is a big issue. And these medicines are extremely expensive. Not everyone has the insurance coverage, right? So there are now, um, so there's, again, semaglutide, which has got Ozempic for diabetes, the indication for diabetes, and Wegovi for the indication for obesity. And then there's terzapatide, which is uh, Munjaro for diabetes. And now just about six weeks ago, got the approval in the form of the same exact chemical, and it's called Zepbound, but the same dose for weight loss. So if the patient is diabetic, you can you know, put the prescription through and hope for the best that there isn't too much of an authorization process mm -hmm. and hope the patient will be covered for it. Most patients with diabetes with any type of insurance are covered for this, for either Ozempic. Indefinitely, though, or does the insurance company, you know, like a lot of things the insurance company does say, okay, you could be on this for three, two months, but you got to, I mean, because obviously diabetes is a chronic disease. Um, do they, in general, not cover for a long period of time, or it really is a case by case, I guess? They typically cover for a year. So you do the author yeah, year, covered mm -hmm. for a year, right? And then the other end of it is the patients who don't have diabetes. So now you getting them covered is a little bit more difficult. So a lot of insurances are finally waking up to the fact that getting some weight off, the patient now will save them a lot of money on on you know in the long term. So, will will Medicare pay for this? I'm just curious, like for elderly people. Medicare will not pay for weight loss medicine. So they'll pay the, the, the diabetes. The they'll pay for the, the Manjaro, but not the Zepbound. Medicaid does not pay for it either. So commercial insurances are becoming, again, they're waking up and they're starting to cover these medicines. And I tell my patients, 
if they weren't covered on December 31st, that they should call their insurance and find out if they're covered on January 1st, because like I said, more and more insurances are starting to wake up and understand that these medicines, especially now that there's cardiovascular risk reduction data in the obese population that's non-diabetic and in the obese population uh, with diabetes, uh, that there is cardiovascular data that shows that there is benefit. So uh, more insurances are, pick are picking this up. It is a process for the doctor. I'm in solo practice. I do my own prior authorizations. I have to um, I have to fill out paperwork. They get denied. I write letters of medical uh, of medical necessity to my patients. I have to document what what the patient has done in the past and what they failed, what mm -hmm. medicine they failed. There are certain criteria that you need to prove to the insurance company before they will approve it. So it, it, it is a process, and it, it, it's a, it's a labor of love. It really is. Yeah, you sound like a terrific advocate for your patients. One other question before we kind of uh, get to the conclusion, you know, on your pro on your program with your patients, whatever too, do they, are they allowed to have a pizza and beer day once in a while? Or, you know, I mean, they, you know, they'll always, oh, they'll say, it's my birthday, you know? <laughs> well, well, I mean, one of the most important, yeah, I'm sorry. Okay. I mean, is there always, do they get that holiday, you know, treat once in a while or how's that work? Absolutely. Life is oh, yeah. Okay. We're, I mean, we're trying to prolong it, but life is short in general. <laughs> and you, you need to enjoy your birthdays and your kids' birthdays, and you need to enjoy your slice of pizza. Uh -huh. uh, my patients, uh, when I when when they go on vacation, when my patients go to Paris, I stop the medicines a week before they go. So mm -hmm. I, I my I want them to enjoy life. So this is this mm -hmm. is a pragmatic, practical approach to long term weight loss, and and you need to be able to enjoy life. So um, you know, always being on your game and 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 you know, uh, eating the right thing, vegetables and lean proteins is really no way to go through life, in my estimation. Yeah, no, that's that's great advice. It's practical, and I, again, it's the question I get from my patients. I, I deal again in, in the, uh, a lot of patients with what's called chronic candida overgrowth, and a lot of them are on extreme diets. And they're always like, when am I going to be able to come off of this? Or can I have this for my birthday? And I'm like, yes, enjoy your life. You know, if you can be good 80, 90% of the time, the other 10% will we'll work around that. Um, Dean, I tell my patients never eat broken glass. <laughs> Everything else is on the table. All right. That sounds good. All right. So as we wrap up, my last two things I'm going to say is, if you can, Dr. Beer, what is the single most important tip you could give to a person who says, I want to lose weight this year, 2024? Aside from finding the right doctor, <laughs> you, want, you want the truth? They should. Yes. They, they should call patients. Well, um, that's what we're going to get to. Okay, no, okay. that makes sense. No, no. Um, the answer, Dean, is to um, find someone who will be. Um, and you mentioned the word advocate. To be an advocate. For yeah, them. the coach. I mean, that's what that's what I say to my patients. By the way, all the time too. I said, what I can do for. I mean, the information is all out there. But we all need mentors and coaches and a doctor, as much as we have a medical license, that is, I think, part important part of our job, which I think you brought out. And I like to think I do as well. So I, I think that is a great tip. Find the right person to work with. I mean, that's what this podcast is all about. So how do we I like to give a handoff to Dr. Rubito. How can people if they're interested in you know your practice and what you're doing, how do they find you? Well, sure. Uh, my name is Philip Rubito. It's spelled R-A-B-I-T-O. And my practice is in, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Interestingly enough, uh, with COVID, my practice has exploded because now insurances cover um, telemedicine. So I have patients that live in Italy, France, and Israel nice. I've never met before. And what I do is counseling. So um, my office number is 877 703 
three seven seven five. And um, you know, I you know, it, it, of course, not everyone's going to have access to an advocate. So if I could say one other thing. If you could find something in your life that you can do consistently, and, and I, I recommend two days of fasting. I tell my patients when they sit down with me for the first time, I said, I hope I see you next week. But if I don't, if you just follow what I tell you right now, and I talk about those two longer fasts, you will have success eventually um, in the long term. So I, I think um, having some sort of making having some sort of plan, some sort of sacrifice, uh, even if it's for a couple of days out of the week for a long period of time, you will lose weight slowly um, and do it in such a way that you can sustain that weight loss. Yeah, that's great advice. So, Dr. Beto, thank you for joining us today. I think the listeners have gotten a lot of important information to think about and discuss with their trusted healthcare pr practitioner. <laughs> 